welcome to the dinner table. We've got a seat right here for you, and we are hopeful that you are ready to pull yourself up to the table, grab yourself your delicious beverage of choice. My name, of course, is Aislinn Campbell, and with me always is... Joe Hilliard. Hello, Joe. Hi. It seems like Wednesday to Wednesday came really fast. It did. You're right. Hunter came home for the weekend. We've been very busy, actually, with lots of stuff going on. It was a very busy week. And so I guess that gets us to this point going, what are we going to talk about today? (laughs) (laughs) I went out last night. It was kind of fun. Um, After I got done working all day at the farm, my brother and his wife have bought a new home. And at that new home, there's a little kind of square foot garden, four by four Mm -hmm. garden. That was already there before they moved in? Yeah. Oh, nice. My nephew, Jack has shown a lot of interest because they actually were living on the farm before they moved. He has shown quite a bit of interest in planting with me and he likes to pick the tomatoes off of my mom's little tomato plant and he loves to get the mint and the oregano every day before school and taste it. And so he's shown some interest in it. And so I messaged them yesterday and said, hey, how do you guys feel about me coming over and helping Jack get his garden all ready and help him get a tomato planted and some cauliflower and broccoli? And and as it turned out, the perfect time for them was actually the night of his birthday because then that would put a little bit of a hoorah around mm. his birthday that evening. And so I went out and saw their home for the first time, planted a garden, walked on the beach celebrating his birthday. And it was a really, really nice evening. I enjoyed it very, very much. That's great. There's only one unanswered question this week, and we've talked about this a lot. How did food as we know it, asparagus and Brussels sprouts, what you brought up last week, how were they discovered? How did they evolve into what they are today? The hunting and gathering that we do is to go to the grocery store to buy pretty much anything that we want. And when I say we, I'm that's, talking about the American public. Okay, the American. I was like, because that's definitely not how I gather food. But once <laughs> upon all. a time, there's this thing. It's a stalk. It, can I eat that? Or as we became more civilized throughout time and agricultural aspects became more commonplace as humans did their thing, you begin to see that specific vegetables that we know and love today did get their roots in a culture. A culture propagated and created the first dishes for that vegetable or meat or whatever it is. Well, and may have very well created that vegetable because that's the thing about the human part of earth and vegetation is that we have adapted evolution through our own processes as well. You're talking about things like selective breeding to get larger things rather than smaller or the other way around. Like if we're talking about the Brussels sprout, Mm -hmm. the Brussels sprout is literally just a cabbage that ended up growing a different way. Well, what ultimately made that happen? Was it because of the part of the country they were trying to grow cabbage in and it wouldn't grow the way that it it grew in a different way and they hybridized Mm -hmm. it to a point where it grew into a stalk with little cabbages all over it? You can't extract the human species from the evolution for as long as we've been on the planet where we're certainly a part of it. How did humans make vegetables what we know them to be today? We talked about asparagus, and then you asked if those also came from Brussels. Yes. The Brussels sprout, we believe, originated. Well, asparagus has a long history going back as far as the first century. There are records of it growing in ancient Greece and Rome. And Egyptians over 2,000 years ago cultivated asparagus for medicinal reasons. And legend has it that it was also so revered that they'd offered it up to gods in their rituals, the asparagus plant, as opposed to some other plant. Right. 
We offer whatever is the most abundant or energetic we, resource yeah. that we have. Or something to the considered gods. valuable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, as with all vegetables, the first asparagus was discovered in the wild. A wild asparagus had thin shoots, thinner than a pencil, and is much different than the asparagus you're going to find in the grocery store. Only but, because the garbage they sell you at the grocery store isn't about good food and native growth. Well, it's, it's about distribution. We've had this conversation. This it's one article that I found said that, it, that through selective breeding and growing techniques, they've developed that thicker stem that we right. see at the steakhouse. That doesn't taste that good, actually. In America, <laughs> most like of tomatoes. it, most asparagus is grown in California. Interesting. I'm guessing, though, that most of the asparagus that you're looking at in terms of what you're looking at is the purposefully agricultural cultivated sure, asparagus. Sure, that's what I'm saying. Asparagus, asparagus is put into the larger food system is in, in America is mostly grown in California. Native asparagus isn't mostly grown in California. Stockton, California is the host of the San Joaquin Annual Asparagus Festival every April where they serve 10 tons of asparagus annually to 65,000 visitors. Asparagus ice cream. Asparagus lumpia, pulled pork sandwich with asparagus slaw, the list goes on and on. We went to a California city that was quite impressive to me because when we drove down to the state park, you were on both the beach on one side and then on the other side, it was flower farms. But in that same area... Mm-hmm was where we learned that like it's an artichoke capital, which I thought was really interesting. Castroville. Castroville. But and then there what was the other one that started with a W? Wheatonton? I don't know, but we Cast- yeah, it was the cal- it was the the growing part of, of Castroville California. was the city that hosts that the artichoke festival, you know, right, every right, year the big, right. big, big one. It's kind of the Mecca. We went to Cannery Row in Monterey, California and ate at an artichoke restaurant. Yes. And I love that about us, mm-hmm. that when we travel, mm-hmm. that we look for the most local experience. And although Castroville and Monterey are a small stretch from one another, not, not many miles at all, mm-hmm. Monterey and that tourist area is where that artichoke restaurant was. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what we ate there? It was artichoke prepared three like, or four different ways. Yeah. One of them was fried yeah. and one of them was stuffed and one of them was pureed into a dip. I don't know. It was all kinds of stuff. It was delicious though. Okay. So the Brussels sprout, and this will take us back to California. It first appeared in Northern Europe during the fifth century and later began being cultivated in the 13th century near Brussels, Belgium, which is, you know, of course, where the name comes from. But in America, production of Brussels sprouts began in the 18th century when French settlers brought them into Louisiana. But guess what state now houses the most Brussels sprouts grown for food system use. California? California. Yeah. Well, that's just because everything is grown in California. I have a question for you about <laughs> that. Because you're right. When we drove through California, we were doing yeah. a little bit of tourist stuff, a lot of brewery stuff, but always on the lookout for food system stuff. Farmers markets, mm-hmm. community gardens, that kind of thing. And you're right. When you drive through Texas, from where we live, deep south Texas, to say Dallas, that's a seven-hour drive. Mm-hmm. And you're going to go through not much agricultural at all. But when we were going where to where? from Corpus to Dallas on the main thoroughfare, you don't see a lot of farmland. Really? 
perhaps in the in the top half because it's less developed. I don't know what part of Texas you're looking at, but everything everywhere I drive in Texas is well. I don't know. It's like extremely contrasted in the major thoroughfares. It's just that there's uh, it's a different type of agriculture. That's all. Well, then that because could be the answer to the question that I was getting to. We're we're growing it. part of our agriculture. One of the biggest agriculture in Texas is cattle. Mm-hmm. Right, and you don't see a lot of cattle farms or cotton farms when you're traveling up the interstate. It's all been developed. I mean, into one big metroplex. Texas. In California, what struck me that was amazing on that drive from San Diego to San Francisco. But that's because we were on the PCH. Certainly. It was Highway 1, a Mm -hmm. major thoroughfare. And when we we got off of the PCH to go inland for some kind of tour, we were, you were right. We were passing these picturesque multicolored flower farms to the left, Mm -hmm. but the strawberry farms to the right. Mm -hmm. I know we had an experience where you could get out and harvest your own strawberries and we just got a few for the, for the road. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at a map of zones, because you talk about zone 9B is where we live. California is a mixture mostly of 9A and 9B. Yep. So what is the difference there? You know, I don't really know the answer to that question exactly. I think that it has to do with insect pressure I always assume that had to do with our temperature. It probably has a lot to do with overnight temperatures. Yeah. And also the other part of it that we can't exclude is the type of soil that they have to grow in versus Uh. the type of soil that we have to grow in down here. Generally speaking, though, timing wise is, is really a lot of what happens with the zones. Timing is an important part of it. And the other thing about Texas is, is even, okay, right here where we live in our home, we're in zone 9B. Mm-hmm. The farm where we're moving is actually zone 9. Okay. So it's a little bit sub, less subtropical. Okay. It just means that you're in zone 9, but you're closer to a, the coast, basically. And the reason there is it, on the coast over in California, they're on the coast. The whole entire state, for the most part, is on the coast. So over at AislinCampbell.com, your YouTube page, you can see weekly videos of you in our backyard and what you've done here. Mm-hmm. That's 9B. You drive 20 miles, 25 miles north, and you get to zone nine, you're saying. Do your farming techniques change, or is that yes. not as much of a gap? Yes. No, absolutely. There's a couple of things. Down here where we live, we actually deal with three different types of soil. We have sandy loam, mm-hmm. we have clay, yeah. and we have sand. Of course. Sandy loam is ideal. You want it all mixed together very nicely. And not only that, but within the same what would be considered your local surroundings of your farmer's market. Mm -hmm. So for us, that was a 200 mile radius. You get into arid climates, you get into climates that freeze. Just even from here, our house, the Taft farm and my brother's where I planted, it doesn't freeze. Unless there's like some ridiculously weird situation. Because it's just so close to the coast. It's so close to the water. The water's warm enough. Mm -hmm. So Taft, you might see more freezes mm -hmm. and that... Changes the way you prepare the beds? Yeah. It changes the timing of planting. What you're willing to plant late. 20 miles away. It's interesting. Absolutely. Because I planted a tomato yesterday with no fear of anything. I might could plant them here at the house, but I don't really have great places to plant tomatoes here. But I'm definitely not going to plant any more of them out at the farm because their likelihood of them making it without me tending them as young as they are is is unlikely. And what I tell people when I'm growing, and this is kind of in conclusion to the question you asked mm-hmm. about zone 9A, 9B, California compared to us, is it doesn't really matter what zone you're in. I mean, the zone stuff is important for the types of plants that you buy. But what's most important is that you understand the piece of property you're on, no matter where that's at. You understand your soil, you understand your sun, 
You understand your water. You understand what temperatures generally happen year round in your particular area. And that's how you do it. And the best way to get that information is to talk to experienced gardeners that have been doing it in that area for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You mean like your Aislinn Campbell page on Facebook? Yeah, definitely. That's one of the ways to do it. I mean, it's the reason why, I mean, I'll tell you from the very start of it, when I do a consultation for someone's home, I ask them questions about their property. More so for them and less for me even is to get them to start thinking about what's happening on their property. The challenge with just pretty generic landscapers that just go in and do the same thing on every property is Mm -hmm. that your plants die. Unless you have a full-time or unless you have, yeah, unless you have a maintenance crew that takes care of them. And the reason is, is because those people that come in and turnkey put in your landscaping, they don't know what happens on your property. They can guess because they're experienced and they know things, but they don't know what's going to happen on that property. They don't know what you do. They don't know how the water stands. They don't know. They don't know. Sometimes for dinner, it's breakfast for dinner. Mm -hmm. I love breakfast for dinner. I'm trying to think of the psychological reasons why I do breakfast for dinner. To me, it feels like it's less work. That breakfast, which is in our house going to be eggs because we got chickens, Mm -hmm. and some version of a breakfast meat, and then maybe like a breakfast potato or something like that. Also, because we don't eat breakfast around here, and we like breakfast food. And so that gives us the ability to have breakfast food. It feels like on most weekends, there's a Saturday or a Sunday where we do a noontime breakfast. Oh, yeah, totally. And that's just because we like breakfast. Yeah. And we like to feed the kids breakfast. So it was a thing where it was like, all right, time to do dinner. I don't know why, but our two o'clock daily conversation didn't happen. So we're we're getting close to 5, 530. How do you feel if I just do breakfast for dinner? And I love you. You never really veto that one. No, but I did say I need vegetables, though. (laughs) Okay. I've got to eat vegetables. (laughs) I was working through what I knew to be your mental process. Okay, it's late and he doesn't want to, like, get a steak out or Mm -hmm. some kind of larger thing. Maybe there's not a ton of vegetables in the crisper, and this time of year we're starting to really see a transition into having a lot more variety to choose from as the fall stuff begins to come in. We had just gone out to the farm, and you brought home a beautiful bag of kale. And, but we had also just gone to the farmer's market last week. So like after we recorded last week, Mm -hmm. we went to the farmer's market and one of the farmers that we talk about a lot, Andrew Edelin, has grown a ton of vegetables. He's doing a fantastic job growing vegetables. And I got some of the most beautiful vegetables from Mm -hmm. him last week. I got green beans and poblano peppers and other kinds of peppers and lettuce and spinach and all kinds of great stuff. And so I was excited to be able to try out some of that stuff. We live in South Texas, the home of the best breakfast tacos in the country. And if you want to argue with us, send us an email that we can promptly delete because we're just correct in this (laughs) thing. So I was thinking, I've got some pan sausage in the freezer. We've got eggs running out our ears. Let's just do some breakfast tacos. Got those Siete brand tortillas, Casa of a Flower, I think, are the ones we have in the house right now for you and I that are grain-free. And, of course, good old-fashioned flour tortillas for everybody else in the house. And made some sausage and egg breakfast tacos, which couldn't be easier to do. You make your sausage, you pour in your eggs. But this time, you were like, put some kale in there. Put some poblano peppers in there. All this fresh stuff that we had in the refrigerator. And I was like, heck, yeah. I think I threw some onion in there too. Mm -hmm. Cooked it when I cooked the sausage Mm -hmm. so that that kale was nice and wilted Mm -hmm. and the poblano peppers were soft to the bite. 
It was very good. Dang, those things turned out great. Yeah, I put a little bit of hot sauce on it, and yeah, they were really good. And it's so easy to do, and I think Super some of that easy. is just automated. How many times have I made breakfast tacos for us over the years? Yeah, but it's just one of those super easy things that like the college kids can do, that anybody can do. And it's funny because when it comes to kale, that tends to be, it's one of the things that often happens with the kale in our house. I'll say, hey, does anybody need any kale? No, nobody needs any kale. Okay, well, I'll just make some eggs with that kale, you know, because it's just a real easy way to wilt it in and like mix it into the food that we're trying to get people to eat. We want you to eat greens, so we're going to mix it into your eggs. (laughs) You've been planting a shitload of vegetables. Tell me what's coming soon, and then we can say yes or no whether they belong in a taco, breakfast taco. Uh, Beans. Green beans? Yes, green beans. No. Right. Although I made green beans last night. I know. I missed that meal. Yeah, it's all right. I got leftovers for you in the fridge, baby. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see green beans. We're going to see squash. If it's cut up, diced up, small enough, we could do squash. Tomatoes, of course. What do, what do tomatoes not go in? Kale. Plenty. We're going to see, we're going to start seeing lettuce, lettuce soon. We're definitely going to see more peppers. That's a frittata and salad night then. Uh-huh. We're going to see more eggplant. I think we could do eggplant and eggs if I dice them up small enough. Uh-huh. Yeah, especially fresh, young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Young ones. What else are we going to see soon? Definitely radishes. Lots and lots more radishes. As you grow more and more food, mm-hmm. and I'm watching you do it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And those vegetables come in. My dad said the other day, because I, I was almost done. I'm done with this one garden I'm working on. And I pointed over to the other one and I told him, I'm like, I'm going to finish these two rows. And then I want to start working on that other one over there. And he goes like this, well, you're ambitious. And I go, yes, I am. And I'm also good at this. So <laughs> let's get going. And he didn't even question it at all. <laughs> but as they come in, I, let's, I just want to say out loud, especially on the show, if we're sticking as local as possible with everything you're bringing in, it, it expands the spectrum of what can be made. More ingredients, you can do more things with them. Mm-hmm. But number two, a repledge, and you shepherd this. And it's not a request; that's a fact. Mm-hmm. Make sure we're using that stuff. I don't want to. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy that it's chicken food. If something goes bad, that we've yeah, got the no, chickens that can take I, care I of it. I want it to be more valued it. than that. I'm looking you know. forward to see how you're gonna, what you're gonna do with all this growth. It's gonna be amazing. Your father passed away back in April. April. It's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And that was after us going through a solid two years. Pretty much. Like this October would have been two years since your dad fell the first time. Yeah. He broke, he fell and broke his hip. Yeah. And it made me understand what a lot of adult children fear is this breaking of the hip and what mm-hmm. the elderly fear in breaking of the hip. Very common, very easy to do when you're older, but a lot of folks, and there's a lot of writing about how the breaking of the hip can lead to a huge, quick decline mm-hmm. for somebody. And, Especially um, if they're not in the best of health to begin with. Right. Which generally that's what it is most of the time when they get to the point of falling and breaking things, their health was declining already before. And it's it sends just the their one whole, you can't back up from And anymore. it sends their whole life into something different. Now you're in rehab for five, six, you know, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of that process for you and your mom and even us with your dad to kind of go through this time. And then as... The year started and your parents had been going back and forth and trying to find the right location for your dad and mom to live as close together as possible. Right. And your dad get the care that he needed. Yeah, that was what, eight, six to eight months ramping up to Corona? Uh Uh-huh, exactly. And then I took on that job in the senior living healthcare situation. 
And then Corona March. descended upon yeah. our passed, world. He passed in April when it, we, they were under some pretty strict quarantining. Mm-hmm. We brought hospice care in to where he was, mm-hmm. separate from my mom, because he required a much higher level of care than my mom, who was fairly mm-hmm. independent at the point. And you know, just to take a little bit of a rabbit hole, one thing I learned during the senior healthcare stint that I did was this idea that being prepared for how you're going to handle long-term health when it gets to that point is essential in terms of your finances. Because your father was able to go into a private home that was a senior living facility, basically. Right. A nurse had taken a five or six a literal bedroom house home and in converted a nice part it of town. into a 10 patient maximum house, mm-hmm. which after trial and error for a couple of other situations... Mm-hmm. turned out to be kind of the best place for him to spend his last days. Yep. There was a very much a personal touch. Mm-hmm. And so when the hospice came in, it was just constant telephone lines. My mom was hospitalized when it was time to put him on hospice. I mean, these are all the things that we haven't really talked about on the show. It's kind of mm-hmm. all the downer. But there was a lot of adversity. Yeah. Right there at the end mm-hmm. of my father's passing. And I would go visit him daily because they really really only wanted in the height of COVID restriction mm-hmm. for an elderly situation, mm-hmm. the the most highest care of... We're not passing germs yeah. into these, this house. I would visit him and family could come. And you went with me a couple of times and you know how heartbreaking and horrible. Well, I know what death looks like. Yeah. I and mean, and, and you, you get glimpses as you grow, but when you're immersed in it with mm-hmm. a grandparent or parent like I was, mm-hmm. it, it, it can be psychologically taxing. Absolutely. So when they pass, you in normal world, you would get a funeral together within a week normally? Well, normal world in South Texas. Sure. Because even in Maine. Right, you got to wait for that ground to Yeah, fall so out. that, it just depends on what type okay, so of, what part of the world you're living in, right, what, what we're used to. Correct. Yeah. And my mom's health was going to prevent that for a little bit. And then every, then we planned it. It was on the calendar. People were invited two or three times, but that COVID risk for the general attendee of an older person's funeral, like the church members that they were important to them weren't going to be able to probably mm-hmm. come based mm-hmm. upon just the recommendations that were being given for older folks to not get into the, any kind of crowd like that. Your mom had literally been told by a physician, you don't need to be in that yeah. public setting. So we finally had it this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, we got to do this. There has to be some closure. There has to, how long are we going to wait? Mm-hmm. And we're watching other people begin to have these kinds of services. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, I was kind of dreading it, you know. Of course. And it turned out as good as it possibly could have, I think. I completely agree. You know, there's an interesting part of the idea of a memorial service versus a funeral. And then it was fun because we ended up talking with your daughter, Savannah, about what we want for our, when we, when we die. Yes. What do we want? There was no leading documentation. There was no, there, (laughs) there was no... There was no specificity in any kind of death documents that my father left behind for what it would, should, could, he would prefer it to be. And I think that there's a generational thing about fear of even having the discussion. I even think sometimes it's a a a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kind of thing about like, Hmm. we're going to ignore death. 
until it's literally our children's problems Un- to figure unignorable. out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Perhaps. And I, I just don't want that for our It's a conversation future. my mom refuses to have. Right. And exactly. it's frustrating. That's, feels like, it feels like that's a generational and a specific cultural You're issue. You're probably absolutely right. And it's a pain in the ass to be involved in that culture and geographical and everything else when you want to do it a completely different way. Yeah. But all of that being said, I think that at the end of the day, outside of a few little blips here and there that were my own like emotional blips about the whole thing, and I know you had your own that maybe we haven't even talked about, it was a celebration. And it felt like a celebration. And I celebrated. And I felt like for the first time, I got to potentially vision your father as a different man than the man I knew. Of all the testimonial, yeah, four or five parade of friends that got up and of spoke. him, the way young people spoke of him, mm-hmm. um, and that, I thought that was an interesting part of the whole thing. But at the end of the day, it was a celebration of your father's life, and I felt like I have a deeper connection with your father now than I ever did before in terms of a strong spiritual leader in my life. After the fact. Yes. That's fascinating. Yes. Because, because the human part of him, the mortal part of him that has the ego part of him Mm -hmm. is now gone. And all that's left is the loving spiritual fatherly figure that he was. And I don't know him for anything other than that. All I know him for was the last eight years of your life when things were a little bit challenging and his health wasn't great and yada, yada, yada. He wasn't at the height of his powers by any stretch of the imagination. Right, right. In my phone are some photos that I took of him in his last days. Mm. And I keep them in my phone. I cannot tell you why. When I'm scrolling through my pictures and I get down that deep, I steady and steal myself to either quickly scroll past them or to take a little little peek. One of the tasks I had for the memorial service was to go through books and books of old photographs to put together the photos that would go into the PowerPoint presentation that you kind of sometimes yeah, I play. I never these saw things. that. It's interesting. They stopped playing it when the family came in. Uh-huh. But I was there early with my mom and I got to watch it uh-huh. 25 times. Uh-huh. That dichotomy, that uh-huh. human dichotomy, of strength, youth, handsome, handsome dude mm-hmm. at the height of his powers. Mm-hmm. And then when I scroll through and see these other pig, I'm looking at a different person. Mm-hmm. The circle of life, the beginning, the end, the idea that we're going to ignore and not talk about this inevitable thing yeah. for some kind of what? Selfish notion of, I'm not calling anybody names, but I mean, in general, I, think I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about death because it's fear, it's shame, it's burden, it's all kinds of things that we've created in our. Is human it pessimistic as opposed to optimistic? See, pessimistic to me is choice to look at something negatively. Can you be op- you can be optimistic, can't you? When you're planning well, I, I out, I think your- if it comes to your when it comes to your father, it had more to do with his loyal service to your mother. Oh, like we can't is, talk about this because if I predecease you, there's going to be a world of trouble? Yes. Mm, like yeah, like could she be. couldn't handle it. And so therefore he didn't go there. Yeah. You know, that's the only. Well, why ver- not with me that's the only when version mom's not of around, them? You know? I don't know. I, right. You, you don't know, know. I don't know. You don't know my parents the way that I know got, your parents. I think you guys got, you and your father got separated at a point in life. And I don't know when that happened, but I think that it did. 
in terms of how you believe in everything, how you believe in spirituality, how you believe in politics, how you believe, I think that there was a, there was a divergence of roads. And at that point, that's something that you and him have to come to together now at this point when he's not a human anymore. The faith that I was raised in says that there is victory in death. There is victory in death. That he <laughs> is in a, in a, in a greater place. And it is, it is. He just understands now, in my opinion. Yeah. He just understands. Okay, so real quick, I want to be cremated, and I got to figure out where I want my ashes spread. What about you? I want you to dig a hole, Uh huh. and then I want you to set me on fire in the hole. Uh I'm already dead, so it won't hurt. Okay. And then after I've burned and my ashes have like melt, I've become... I'm going to build a big uh, bonfire on top of you so that you're down there in the coal bed. And I'm the biochar now. Okay. Then I want you to plant a tree once the, the, ah, the char goes out. so that tree taps through the root ball into you, and you are fully inside the tree. Yeah. Do you have an idea listen. what species of tree you'd like to see? Um, no, not yet. I'm not prepared for that one yet. But I'm going to have to defy a lot of Texas state law in order to get this done. I don't care. My mission, there's, a, there's something about me. There's something about my core inner person mm-hmm. that has got to understand my worth and value. And the one, the thing that scares me the most about death is not what comes after death. The only thing that scares me about be- death, and I figured this out during this whole process with you and your father, is the idea that no one values my body enough to give me back to the earth. Here is why there's a difference between your philosophy and my dad or my mom's philosophy on this matter. The piece of you that has value in the Christian faith is your spirituality. And when you die, that leaves you. The spirit of you leaves you and merges with heaven, goes to heaven. You're sitting on golden streets in a mansion, perhaps with all of your ex-wives. That's taking away any value that exists on the planet Earth. Okay. I'm not telling you they're right. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm, I'm just saying that's the difference in the thing. That's where I separate from that religion. But then there are plenty of... Because they decided mm-hmm. that it was pagan and it was wrong to be connected with the earth. And you cannot be disconnected from the earth. So even when my spirit goes, which I completely agree with... Okay. There is still value left sure. in the cells sure. that are my body sure. that are left there laying on the ground. Sure, your your picture of you merging with a tree as much as that occurs within the chemical process of tree growing. It eats is me. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, and my spirit's and not so there anymore. And so is the anymore, notion of sprinkling ashes into a place or, or except on that it's a place. Just dead ashes now. It's not cells anymore. Yeah, but you told me that hey, take that coal take the ash that's in the bottom of our fire pit and let's put it to good use in this garden yes because it's not all burnt down to complete nothing anymore it's actually something still there i think that i can do it with the tree thing if you predecease me for some reason yeah i'm not going to predecease you you're you're you're, i'm seven years younger than you and i'm a woman but I, I think it's the and I'm taking a very of healthy, your body. Woman. It's this taking of your body and burning it that A would be uncomfortable to do. Yes, I understand you will not feel pain, but that would be very ugh. And B, I think that's Why illegal. Is that, ugh. But that's only something that got that Because we've... I do put value in that body that I would be burning and it's you and it's your face. I'd have to put you in like a sack. All right, let's move on. <laughs> As long as you don't put me in a closet, we're good. <laughs> 
Man, this COVID, I'm so tired of it. I said this last week, my favorite two food events or two of them in the town that we live in were this past weekend and this upcoming weekend. This past weekend was the Greek festival. If you go back to season one around this time last year, you're going to hear us talking about the Greek festival and how it was part of our big Euro journey that we were doing. Another thing that's been put on the kibosh, us going to restaurants with our friends every couple of weeks. So we did the Greek festival this weekend. My son came in for the memorial service, but I did when I mentioned to him that it was Greek fest weekend and told him it was going to be drive through only. We're not going to the Greek church that hosts the thing to get the delicious, help me, euros and spankatopias and dolmas and hummus and that they got a pared down menu mm-hmm. that you go in your car to drive through. You know what? Love this church. Love this festival. We are going to support it. But Hunter was super excited that he was here for Greek Fest weekend. He was going to get one of those euros. Yep. And so you did on Sunday. Loaded up, went over there, got in line. But we can't talk about this without talking about the grain-free. The dietary restrictions. And dietary restrictions that shoot all over your experience this year. Well, for one thing, Greeks apparently aren't because vegetarians. Of, no, I think it'd be partially, according to our festival. Well, that's the thing that I think is so unfair sometimes is that ultimately every restaurant, every festival that tries to do ethnic food still has to do the American version. The South Texas certainly version. Right, exactly. Can I get a because, three turkey legs on the side? Yeah, because they're not gonna order the things that, you know, I mean that or at least that that's that's the experience that they've had. But because I said because I looked at the menu and I was like, well what can I eat? Well apparently they were out of the spanakopitas by Sunday. Right. And I, that would have been fine because a tiny little sliver of filo dough, I'd probably have picked out the spinach out of the middle it's of a most puff of it anyway. Right? You know, yeah. And then you did order me the um, the cream puff one, the right. cheese one. Mm-hmm. So I ate that, and I ate a little bit of the filo. I just kind of picked away at it. But then I had said, okay, well, just get me a good a good salad with some good Greek dressing on it. Well, apparently with COVID, they're not allowed to serve salads, which the cashier exactly gave me a. Me. <laughs> pretty lame explanation but she was saying it is lame that we can't do greek salad this year but there's a specific covid requirement that salad not salad or the preparation all the sugar you want as long as you don't spread the germ around so did you eat the baklava from end to end or did you pick around on the phyllo there i ate the baklava from end to end there wasn't a ton there isn't a ton of phyllo in a baklava it's mostly nuts and honey and oh my god it was worth Every bit of the drive and the line and whatever you did to get it, because that was the best baklava I've ever eaten in my life. Period. Hands down. No questions about it. The best. I took a couple of pieces of baklava to my mom along with a Greek dinner thing. Uh She said it was the best baklava she's ever eaten. It was so freaking good. I would have eaten 12 of them and been sick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this weekend is the second of two of our favorite food events, and it's the Jewish Food Festival. I think I'm going to be in the same situation with the Jewish food. I can eat the pickles. Well, we went, (laughs) we've gone to the Jewish food festival, I think every year for the last three or four years. And I took the liberty of printing out the menu because we have to order it. Because unlike the Greek food festival that you just showed up and ordered, they're doing all online only. And the deadline to order is today. Oh my. I'll have some pickles. Now, these are pickles that they fly in from New York City. I'll also take a lox and bagel plate, and I won't eat the bagel. Brisket plate? You're not going to eat the meat? Nope. Corned beef sandwich? Nope. Cabbage rolls? Nope. 
Cabbage Co- rolls has a bunch of. Um, now, what about an egg noodle and kugel? What? What about an egg noodle? It still egg? has. It's- <laughs> <laughs> what about an egg noodle in kugel? <laughs> it still has flour in, in it. I can always it- eat a bite of something off of other people's plates. And I'm not done with this sugar thing. So, I mean, 21 days. Like, that's... if you ordered a brisket plate, I'd eat a bite of your brisket. Matzo ball As soup. As opposed to, is what I didn't I eat get... a bite of your gyro because I didn't want that. We cannot get matzo ball soup in our city except that. for this event. And I... get some matzo ball soup. I, I just can't eat the it. matzo ball. You can't have it. You could eat the soup, not the matzo ball. Oh, here we go. Chopped liver. Liver, onions, boiled eggs, parsley, salt, and pepper. I'm not going to eat any of that. Oh, you don't even want the liver. Well, I mean, I don't mind eating liver. I just don't, I don't want to eat that meat. So I'm doing I mean, an online order of half a dozen pickles? <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens. You want the bagel and lox for real? Yeah, totally. Okay. I'll all eat right. bagel and lox. I just won't eat the bagel, which is kind of a bummer, but I like all the other stuff that comes on it. That's what I usually order anyways is bagel and lox. That's almost always the thing I order at the Greek right. festival. But we will put I our mean, order in Jewish today festival. and I can't wait. When, when do we get it? I, I got to go in and check it out. I don't know. I can pick around at all kinds of things on that list. All right. So I might get a smattering. Smattering. Table topics. Hopefully, let's hope we pick a better question than last week. Because last week's yeah, question sucked. It balls. made you angry. Yeah, I hate that crap. All right, go. See. I hate that. You know, it's like I guess that those questions are similar to the way that they did that show, TV show. What would you do? You find a dollar bill on the ground. What would you do? Pick it up like, and put it in my pocket. Yeah, hell yeah. I would pick it up and put it in my pocket. Thank God for money falling out of the sky. <laughs> right. Right? What would you do if you found a satchel with a half a million dollars in it that was clearly like set out for some kind of something that looked nefarious, but you've got it, can't be traced to you, right place, right time, found a half a million dollars in a sack? Damn, these meditations I'm doing are good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd put it in a safe deposit box. Well, then it'll just sit there and get stale, and then the universe will say, oh, he didn't want that money, I guess. As long as I keep the key, I'll get access to it. But Mm. would you turn it in? I mean, that's the right, right? Ethical, moral thing to do? Well, at what point do you, like, (laughs) moral, ethical? I don't want to go down this road anymore. I'm done with this. Are you ready for your question? Yeah, I hope it's not moral or ethical. Go ahead. What's your favorite summertime activity? Summer, summer, summertime. It is summertime. The temperature is very warm where we live, Mm. and... I like it, and we haven't done it in a while. I think it's going to be, and maybe this summer can be the summer where we can get back into it. When we first got together, we went out to the beach all of the time. We put mm-hmm. together our little beach box. We put together our pop-up and the duh, and how do you hold it down, and there's a table, and let's take a thing. And when we did that over the course, many times over the summer or two, you start to learn our water and when it's clear and clean and when there's tar on the beach and when there isn't. And then just the fun that it is to go to the beach, tell your friends, throw a kite up next to your car so your friends can find you at the proper place where you're trying to set out to meet. Yeah, that's my favorite one. And we haven't done it in way too long. Busy life. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's what it is. I don't know. I, I've been to the beach a lot recently, mm-hmm. so. But I actually tend to go to the beach more in the fall. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just think of summertime. You think of going to the beach, maybe. I don't know where. I like to travel, too. Summer's good. That's really the only time of the year that I'm not growing, is right. in August. You can take off for a week and feel comfortable knowing that mm-hmm. there's no nothing really going to die while you're gone. <laughs> and if it does die, well, shit happens in the summertime, man. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite thing to do in the summertime, truth be told, is the group that gets together for my best friend's birthday. Well, they're my best friends. Sure. Um, but his birthday. And going up to our, our lake 
and hanging out in the the campers or the tents or whatever. And there's usually, or has been, but often there are summer thunderstorms in our area. We get a lot of summer thunderstorms, which can be fun, you know, especially paired with that event. And stand up paddle boarding. Yes, yeah, stand up paddle boarding, bicycling, yeah. birds, uh, all kinds of cool shit. That's definitely one of my favorite it things. It was a good time. That's where yeah. there, was, there was some new dancing in the moonlight in a rainstorm outside mm-hmm. of a tent one year, if I remember. Yep, exactly. I see your mom's calling over there. You better answer the phone. I want you to dig a hole. Uh-huh. And then I want you to set me on fire. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Dinner Table Talks. We will be back next Monday with a fresh episode. In the meantime, hit us up on social media, send us an email, DM us, whatever. We want to hear from you. And we hope that you're enjoying the episodes as much as we enjoy creating them for you.